1: My guest today is the author of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and it's called The Light and Flame, and if that didn't didn't give it away, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is what we're going to talk about today. And, of course, I was asking my guest, how did you get into the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth?
0: Well, part of my background was Polish, and although I wasn't especially interested in Poland as a child, uh, I did find uh, Polish history and culture fascinating uh, when I came to visit as a student. And since the 18th century was my favourite period, it was natural for me to focus on the last few decades of the of old Poland, which, as I discovered, uh, was in fact a commonwealth or republic constituted both by the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, known to historians as the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In fact, a great deal of the most interesting things actually happened in the East. In the, in, in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So this was an extraordinary community of citizens, which I think has got a great deal to teach us. And so 35 years ago, I decided I would learn the, the language and I would specialize in the history and I've followed that path ever since. And how,
1: how did the birth of the Lithuanian Commonwealth Okay, one, one thing that's raised back the origins of the and I'm not trying to put all the PLC sometimes, just to shorten, shorten it a little bit. Right.
0: I'll, I'll do my best of you to keep it brief. Uh, the, uh, the kingdom of Poland uh, emerged uh, out of obscurity uh, shortly before the end of the first Christian millennium, uh, where the where a state and Christianization came more at the same, more or less at the same time. At a time when much of Central Eastern and Northern Europe uh, were being Christianized. we get similar processes in Denmark, uh, in Norway, in Sweden, in Hungary. The Bohemians or Czechs had got in about hundred years earlier. So the Kingdom of Poland emerges at the end of the uh, of the of the first millennium. Uh, it initially grows very fast, and it contracts. It's divided up. It's partly put back together, but it's certainly one of the players in 14th century Europe. And it's at that point it sort of uh, unites with the the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Now, the pagan Lithuanians had not been converted to Christianity at the same time as their neighbours, the Poles, and to the south, the Russians or Ruthenians. In other words, the ancestors of of today's sort of Ukrainians, Belarusians and Russians. uh, They uh, found themselves at the head of a huge empire in what had been Kievan Rus in the 13th and 14th centuries, uh, and they found themselves under pressure from a crusading order, the Teutonic Knights in the west, and also from Muscovite Rus uh, to the uh, the northeast, and the best option uh, was to convert not to Orthodox Christianity, but to Catholic Christianity, particularly as the Polish throne was there for the taking. All it required was that for the Lithuanian Grand Duke to convert to Catholicism and marry the 12-year-old heiress to the the Kingdom of Poland. And that's what happened in the 1380s. It starts off as a sign of marital contract, but it very soon becomes a good deal more than a simple union of thrones and dynasties. Uh, It becomes a union between political communities because the Kingdom of Poland in particular was already a community where the monarch had to rule by the consent of the community of the realm, the, the more important of his subjects.
1: What, what made it a commonwealth and not an, mm-hmm. a empire, not, um, not an empire in the traditional sense?
0: Well, the word commonwealth is an early English translation of the Latin res publica, The later translation of that word will be republic. And that goes back to the old Roman Republic and the res publica, which literally means the the public thing or the public good or the common good or the shared good of uh, a community refers to the aims, the values, but also to the people uh, that make it up. Now, it was perfectly possible um, several hundred years ago to have a Commonwealth or Republic while also having a monarch. Uh, Elizabethan England, for example, was often referred to as a as a Commonwealth. Uh, the French writer Baudin re- referred to his Six Livres de la République, the Six Books of the Commonwealth. So the idea of a community of citizens, looking back to the model of the ancient Roman Republic, uh, was considered compatible uh, with a monarch, even if you could have republics in the sort of Italian city stage that sort of didn't have them. Uh, but on the whole, a crowned republic was a possibility several hundred years ago. That's what the Polish-Liuchian Commonwealth was.
1: Hmm. And would you argue that one of the most more famous kings, or rather queens, supposedly, would be Jadwiga? Yes. So, What made her so popular as a queen? Well, she... So
0: far, uh, she is the only Polish monarch to have been canonised. Now, all most countries in Europe have their royal saints. Some of them have several. Uh, and Jadwiga, uh, or Hedwig of Anjou, was uh, from her family background. She was of uh, the Angevin dynasty. had come to rule in the Kingdom of Hungary in the, the 14th century. She was the, the daughter of the King of Hungary. Uh, one of his daughters would inherit in Hungary, the other one in Poland. Uh, she was... She made a rather reluctant marriage for the good of her kingdom to the uh, Grand Duke of, of Lithuania. Uh, but, you know, she then sort of devoted her life to the poor. She was saintly. She provided for education. She built up a fortune and left it to refound found the, uh, the Jagiellonian University in, uh, in Krakow, which uh, her great-uncle, uh, Casimir the Great of Poland, had founded. So, you know, she died very young, but she provided the, uh, the Kingdom of Poland with its saint, and she made the marriage uh, that linked the Kingdom of Poland Poland with the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which took it into a sort of a different league of the of the European uh, status.
1: Hmm. So, how did you draw go about governing the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth? As because it's quite a huge area and quite. when I looked at the, I tried to look at the map yesterday, but from it and it's a lot of it were Lithuanians, but as to as the way I understood it, they didn't speak. Lithuanian at the time they spoke, at the, 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 how, why was that? Why what, why did especially the nobility not speak Lithuanian, if that is correct?
0: Well, at the time when the union, uh, the, the initial union made at Krevar in what is now the northwest of Belarus, uh, was made between the Grand Duke of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland, or the Crown of the Kingdom of Poland, which effectively means the, the community of the realm. Uh, at that time, well, Polish wasn't a written language either. Now, the written languages of the time were Latin. German, and a m- Old Church Slavonic for religious matters in the East, and what was known as Chancery Ruthenia, sometimes called Old Belarusian, it is influenced by Old Church Slavonic, uh, and it was the sort of the legal language of the, of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Lithuania was, at that stage, a spoken language, including the elites, When the Grand Duke of Lithuania wanted to speak to his cousin and didn't want to be overheard by the diplomats, they would use Lithuania. But Within a hundred years or so, the, the Lithuanian elites were stopping to use the language of the uh, of the country in the northwest, where modern Lithuania more or less lives now, um, and. Nothing particularly unusual in that. A lot of languages in medieval and early modern Europe didn't become sort of written languages of high culture. It wasn't yet certain that Polish was going to make that transition either. But that did happen in the 16th century. Polish did become a language of high prestige, high culture, literature, law, unlike in Hungary where Magyar was only adopted for laws in the 19th century. In Poland, Poland Polish was used for laws as early as the 16th century. Lithuania was some way behind. It was printed, it was written down, but only for religious purposes with the advent of the of the Reformation. So Lithuania didn't really become a literary language of high culture uh, until the nineteenth the century, and some of the elite had already gravitated to Ruski, that is, you know, the old Ruthenian language, old Belarusian. Uh, Others in the 16th century especially increasingly moved uh, towards towards Polish. Um, It was a perfectly sort of, you know, spontaneous process there was no uh, there was no coercion sort of involved now this is difficult for later Lithuanian national activists to sort of accept because their own elites had forgotten the language of their ancestors but there was nothing intrinsically unusual uh, in that process it just happened.
1: And how did you draw on about this, Did the Lithuanians feel like they was a part of the empire? Did they and how did, they, how did they govern this? Because, in, as we talked about before, and not necessarily because of Concord, then I feel like they are a part of the empire. Was it kind of like Austria-Hungary, where they had their own government in Lithuania, or was it one government? Sorry, not Lithuania, but Hungary. So, as we talked about in the Habsburg Empire, Hungary was pretty much independence from... Uh, from Austria, you, can but... some,
0: you can certainly make some analogies uh, between the relationship in the, in the Habsburg monarchy and that between in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, except that from the start, it was a Lithuanian dynasty that had become kings of Poland. The analogy here would be the, the Scottish dynasty that became kings of England. Uh, Whereas in the case of the Habsburgs, it was the sort of the the House of Austria that was elected as King of Hungary. And later they made themselves into hereditary kings of Hungary. In the case of uh, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, it was the hereditary Lithuanian dynasty that became elective kings of Poland. So it's like the other way around. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania always had a great deal of, uh, of weight in this relationship, even after its territory was reduced at the time of the Union of Lublin. In 1569, uh, uh, when what is now Ukraine became part of the Polish crown rather than uh, the great Grand Duchy of Lithuania. This was the Lithuanians wanted a, a relationship of equals, the Poles wanted incorporation. There was a good deal of Toing and froing, tug of war, uh, before it sort of finally sort of got worked out, probably around the early 17th century, as a relationship that in some respects was of equals and in other respects was not, and it was a sort of compromise that worked for the for the rest of the Commonwealth's existence. So, a union not of equals, at least not in all respects, uh, but one where the Lithuanians certainly uh, were partners rather than simply sort of. Know, parts of an, an empire. After all, some of the very richest nobles uh, of the entire Commonwealth were from the, uh, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and some of its greatest heroes came from the, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania.
1: Now, before we go on to the next topic, there is something about found quite fascinating when I was looking this up before t- this episode, and they have seen, we've mentioned the Lithuanians, but there seemed to be a multi not national to- and almost tolerance of religions as well as nationalities in so what kind of other nationalities did we have in the Polish Lithuanian from the world? Because it seemed rather tolerant for the first time if I'm not the way of the books. Yeah. yeah.
0: In the first place, the word nation didn't necessarily mean the same uh, as it would come to mean in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, we're not talking about sort of mass nations encompassing an entire population. We're talking about uh, those conscious age- educated uh, members of elites not we're not talking about tiny numbers here uh, we're talking as much as sort of you know eight ten percent even of a population uh, which compares quite well with a lot of nineteenth century franchises um, but a nation uh, we're talking about political communities talking, so, a nation not yeah, of, of the
1: nationalities to be held within Mm-hmm. To well, in refer- terms of, there were certainly
0: a great variety of people speaking different languages with different faiths. Uh, in the east of the Commonwealth, the most numerous are the Ruthenians, in other words, the people who would later become Belarusians and especially Ukrainians. Then you have the, sort of those who would become the, the modern Lithuanians and the modern Latvians uh, later on in the north. Uh, to the west, you mainly have Poles, but you have large numbers of settlers from, Germany. Then you have significant communities of Armenian merchants, particularly of the southeast. And from the sort of uh, what well, the earliest Jews settled in the in the 13th century, but the numbers really increase from the 16th century onwards until by the 18th century, you have something like three quarters of a million Jews, which comes to you know well over five, maybe as much as seven percent uh, of the population. It's the largest Jewish population uh, in the world. Uh, at that time and, and would remain there in those lands until the until the Second World War. So a great variety of ethnic, linguistic and sort of religious difference. It didn't mean that everyone was equal, uh, but it did mean that they had to sort of rub along and had strategies for peaceful
1: coexistence. And mm. um, I'm going to try to say the strident right problem won't, but how, how did the that democracy work, if that. If I said it right, there, how close the word the-
0: "schlachter" comes from the German "geschlechter," uh, it refers to uh, the the idea of uh, of warriors and knighthood, and so in the course of the later Middle Ages, we get a social transition. Uh, and the schlachter or the noblest state uh, uh emerges it's sometimes referred to as the Ordo equestris in latin which is the equivalent of the equestrians in the, in in ancient rome uh, uh that uh, that level just below the senate
1: was a uh, kind of democracy as we think of it or was it not really sorry. a democracy
0: well, it was and it wasn't. Uh, depends on your criteria for uh, democracy. Uh, out of uh, the Schlachter emerges from a, a merger between the great lords and the knights, uh, and uh, so this uh, then becomes the sort of the the estate of nobles uh, as a whole, and, and it's very numerous. It will, it's not quite ten percent as was once thought, but you know, it's between sort of five and eight percent of the entire population And it includes some very rich people and includes rather more extremely poor people. Uh, But it it had a certain real sense of its own distinctiveness, of its own collective identity and its values, above all its attachment to liberty. So, okay, okay.
1: And uh, then, of course. yeah, uh, so I've read quite a lot of Russian history recently and European history in general and it seems that the polish lithuanian Commonwealth always is mentioned there because it uh, oh, It seemed to me that the, the, it is the European powers who elected into the Pol- polish lithuanian Commonwealth and that, as, as I was reading about Peter the Great by the late Robert K. Massey he mentioned and it kind of was a little bit Back what in uh, in the Europe is that is that true to
0: that? So, well, the, by the time we get to Peter the Great, the Commonwealth is in deep crisis. Uh, it had been one of the uh, most powerful, one of the most prosperous. Uh, communities in Europe, not just one of the largest, uh, but by the late 17th, early 18th century, it's had decades of wars being fought on its own soil. Its its political system is suffering from a chronic lack of trust, uh, and there is the possibility of foreign powers interfering uh, through an excessively legalistic uh, insistence on unanimity in decision making. This is the the notorious uh, liberal better. I think it's so, going a bit far to call the Commonwealth a backward child. Uh, though, there are, uh, there are many uh places uh in Europe uh and, and beyond that uh, that could be seen as childlike from certain perspectives.
1: So, what was the Western if it was such a crisis and if it was? If it was kind of a backwater of Europe, what, what, what made the European powers so interested in having place in their own king or royalty there?
0: Well, royal elections were very much the norm in most of Europe in the late Middle Ages and the first part of the early modern period. Over time, most of the monarchies in Europe tended to become uh, stronger at the expense of their communities of the realm, the the nobles, the burghers, the clergy, and so on. They ratcheted up the taxes. They increased the size of their standing armies. They would eliminate political opponents without going through due process of law. All these things were sort of happening. But the Commonwealth very much stuck to its principles of sort of republic. And liberty follow, uh, you know, founded on the idea of a community of virtuous citizens, and that worked pretty well until the middle of the 17th century. I and mean, then it was struck by all these blows, uh, and it proved unable to you know, handle some of the tensions within its own uh, society. Particularly badly handled the uh, the problem of the Ukrainian Cossacks. Uh, these, this, I think, was the uh, the point at which the Commonwealth entered a deep crisis, and it was not able fully to recover from that crisis, at least not until it was too late.
1: And of course, we have to talk about Catherine the Great and her, her placement on the crown, and and probably wrong was it just or she placed on the throne. The person
0: that Catherine the Great had succeeded uh, to the uh, to the empire that had been effectively created out of Muscovy by by Peter the Great, and which had continued to grow under Peter the Great's less effective successors, and then of course she sort of got rid of her husband and took the the throne for herself, and she needed a political success. She needed to show the Russian elites, and she needed to show other European monarchies that she was capable of making the decisions in the neighbouring country, in other words the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth so she needed success. The person she uh, chose was her former lover, a nobleman called Stanisław Poniatowski, who had helped her develop intellectually and personally uh, a few years earlier when they were uh, lovers. And she thought that he would be just the man, he would be dependent on her, he do whatever she said. And she was successful in getting him elected. And when he was elected, he took the additional name, apart from his own name of Stanislav or Stanislaus, he also took the name of Augustus, uh, which was intended as a reference to ancient Rome, but also to his predecessors from the House of Saxony, Augustus II and uh, Augustus III. But he Uh, wasn't
1: really interested in the throne, was he? He was basically just just interested in Catherine because he did have feelings for her.
0: He, he would have preferred to have married Catherine and been the husband of the Empress of Russia to have been the, the King of Poland. That's clear. He, he thought that he, he was a Polish patriot. He thought that he wanted he could serve his country better as the Empress's husband than uh, uh, than he could as King of Poland. But of course, that was never going to happen. And, you know, he was not immune to the attractions of being chosen for the highest office in his own country. So um, having sort of you know, made his... Uh, so I'm not really sure about this sort of uh, 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 game. He, he did accept the proposal, that he, in, uh, and he was chosen as King of Poland. Uh, had he not been chosen of King of Poland, Catherine would have imposed someone else. Uh, had she not tried to impose someone, there would probably have been a civil war uh, between the main magnate factions in Poland, uh, Lithuania. So, you know. It's possible that someone else could have been chosen, but would it have been any better? Well, we don't know
1: that. Yeah, was, he, was, he got, was he easy to control as Catherine anticipated, or was he, as soon as he got on the throne, was he difficult to well, maintain? Well,
0: they both misunderstood each other. Uh, she believed that he would be infinitely malleable and, and she underestimated his, his his principles. He was a determined reformer. He wanted to see an enlightened Poland uh, and he was prepared to accept a setback in order to come back later and try again and his whole 30-year reign is a story of sort of try, try and try again. Uh, if you can't do it this way we'll try and do it that way. And he doesn't get there uh, towards the end of his reign with the Constitution of the 3rd of May 1791. But he makes a fundamental mistake. He thinks that Catherine, because she wishes to enlighten the Russian Empire, is also going to support the enlightenment of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. She wasn't interested in that at all. She wanted to keep, you know, Poland, Lithuania. She wanted it to be passive, submissive. And Should it suit her, she could carve bits off of it and maybe share it with the neighbours if that should be necessary. Uh, There's no commitment at all to improving the state of Poland-Lithuania. As long as it sort of just stays inert, that's okay although we may have to carve it up. Should it resist? Well, that could only accelerate the process of, of carving it up. He didn't understand that until that process was already underway. Uh, he did come to understand it in, in, in the end. And at that point, he just tried to choose the least bad options.
1: There is a letter, and I think this was in another historian's book. that I don't remember which one, but... Where he does meet her, hope to meet her again, but it doesn't I think it's just Potemkin that he meets and there is a party and the fire to just a day or so and then it has to go back to I don't remember exactly when this occurred, but
0: you're referring to the what Adam Zamoyski memorably called a tryst on the Dnieper, And this uh, happened on the sixth of May seventeen eighty seven. Catherine was with Pachomkin uh, who probably was her morganatic husband. He was certainly the viceroy of the southern parts of the Russian Empire.
1: He yeah, deserves uh, an episode on the sound for sure.
0: Uh, and she was on her way to the Crimea, uh, which had been recently annexed by Russia from the Khanate of the, the Crimea and before that from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and, and she was visiting the new provinces that Patyomkin had acquired and was settling. Uh, and she did this on a great progress uh, in a flotilla around the river Dnieper. And the king of Poland was not allowed to leave his country without the agreement of Parliament, or the same. But well, this was an opportunity to convince the Empress uh, to allow an alliance between Russia and Poland uh, to fight the Ottoman Empire, and this would you know, raise the profile of Poland, Lithuania, give the citizens something to do, something to cheer on. He thought this was, you know, the right thing to do. So he travels all the way across uh, Poland in the in the early springs, sort or of waiting for the ice to melt and so on. Uh, and he sort of gets to the river Dnieper, and he waits there for Catherine to to come down the the river uh, in her galley, and he gets received by the empress on board uh, on that day, and they only have a a few minutes together, tete-a-tete. But uh, Patyomkin is there. um, uh, There's a lot of negotiation between Stanisław August and Patyomkin. The proposal is made. There's some social events. The king, however, can't persuade Catherine to stay for to come on board they can come, come to shore for a banquet so she just watches the fireworks this is this incident of light and a flame when uh, one of the hills on the banks of the river Dnie- uh, Dnieper is dressed up as Vesuvius with sort of fireworks, uh, and it sort of explodes in the uh, in the Empress's honour. And that little hill, incidentally, was the, the Moskiewka, in other words, the little Moscow, which sounds rather ironic now. So this was the event. It set in train a great deal of excitement in Poland, lithuania uh, and... Uh, now, uh, unfortunately, the king was kept waiting for his answer. Um, events ran away from him. Uh, that was the real significance. It prevented something else happening, which might have taken things in an even more dramatic direction uh, if the opposition had got in there first. Uh, but it was. What
1: was the kind almost, of turning
0: point in his reign? Hmm. What was the
1: event that could have happened? that not you try it? explain?
0: well the, he was being challenged by an opposition coalition of aristocrats which was effectively saying to the empress you, know, you don't want to trust that man in warsaw that you've made king you should trust us the first families instead we can rule the commonwealth on your behalf more effectively than he can that was the offer being made effectively it was a group of oligarchs uh, uh, uh sort of you know, you know asking for uh, a change of uh, of regime uh, from the from the foreign patron uh not a very attractive proposition. Of course, later the opposition would present itself as the patriots who freed their country from sort of Russian domination. But that uh, sort of is it, best to draw a veil on what they were really up to in the 1770s and 1780s.
1: Mm. And, of course, that, this brings us to, we mentioned the alliance, which brings us to the Polish army and arguably one of the most famous or famous of the... Not just in Russia, I assume, but in Poland as well, the Cossacks and the Wing Hussard, which is one of the most famous medieval knights. And uh, or as I like to call them, the early furies. How how significant was the Cossacks and the Wing Hussars? Which what do you say?
0: Right. Well, let's take them separately. Uh... Not least because they were sometimes on opposite sides, Uh, but the Cossacks of Zaporizhia uh, in the, what is now the south of Ukraine. At that point, it would have been the far southeastern corner of the the Polish crown. These were the freebooters of The steps, people from different ethnic and uh, social origins who uh, wanted to join this rough democratic community uh, at the end of the world when they could sort of plunder the Tatars but also uh, fight against them. But also, these were people often in trouble with the law. Their leaders very much wanted to be sort of part of the the Schlachter and to have the rights of free Polish noble citizens. And these Free Polish noble citizens didn't really want to have them. But they were great fighters, especially infantry, uh, fantastic in a siege. Uh, and the Cossacks provided a good deal of the, cost of the Commonwealth's military strength in its successful wars against the Muscovites, against the Ottoman Empire and against the Swedes. But the social tensions in that part of the world, the religious tensions between Orthodoxy and Catholicism, led to a huge revolt in 1648 uh, from which the Commonwealth never really recovered. Now, the Hussars, on the other hand, these were the initially medium-weight cavalry, highly manoeuvrable, ideally adapted to the open battlefields of uh, Eastern uh, Europe and the, and the great spaces. They were, uh, were manoeuvrable, they were adaptable, they were flexible. And when they charged with their lances, they could scatter more or less any opposition if they got the timing uh, right. And they were effective on the battlefields until the late 17th century. Their sort of last really big victory uh, was at the Second Battle of Parkine, uh, which was just a little, uh, few, a few weeks after the uh, the Great Battle of Vienna in 1683. Uh, uh, and their their wings, well, in the 18th century. Yeah, I they'd... want to ask
1: what, is, what a story there with the wings. Yeah.
0: But all the surviving examples show these great enormous sort of harnesses. Uh, it, doesn't,
1: it doesn't seem very practical, does it? No, it
0: doesn't. And they wouldn't have, uh, uh, and these were the ones that were used for parades in the 18th century. Uh, they were simply there to impress. Uh, for battle, they would have been smaller, they would have been fixed directly to the saddles and not to their backs. Uh, uh, and they were you know, there's a good deal of debate about this. Was it because they rattled in the wind and created a noise? Was it because it made it harder to throw a lasso over them? Uh, uh, or, or was it uh, simply a, a sign? Um, um, was it one wing or two? You know, It takes time for the full set. To- this is a
1: target shoot here.
0: To, to 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 evolve, uh, it certainly must have made quite an impression. Uh, even if yeah, the ones that we use for battle were rather smaller than the uh, the, the ones that uh, we we subsequently see in the museums of Poland, which are mostly from the uh, from the eighteenth century when the hussars had basically become a, a parade outfit, uh, which were sort of brought out on special occasions, but they you know, they were not an effective fighting force uh, anymore. But they were an effective fighting course uh in the 16th century and for most of the 17th mm.
1: now do forgive me for having to go a little bit back again because we haven't met we haven't only, only really mentioned Vidra in uh, this dynasty but how significant was the Jagiellonian dynasty in right. Poland? so do forgive me for having to go back a little bit in time right. again but
0: well, they're hugely significant, and of course, they still have a great symbolic uh, resonance, not just in Poland, but throughout the region. And We we forget that uh, that around 1500, uh, three brothers, Jagiellon, uh, sort of uh, ruled over a third of Europe. We have one of them who was king of Hungary and Bohemia. We have one who was king of Poland. We have one who was Grand Duke of Lithuania. Uh, there was also a saint in the dynasty. Their their younger uh, their brother uh, Casimir. Another one became Primate of uh, of, of Poland. Uh, so uh, this was you know quite a, uh, a and the youngest one goes on. Well, the second youngest one goes on to so, so to outlive them all. Known as Sigismund the Old and. Uh, you know, very much a kind of grandfather. Uh, of Europe. So Jogaila, the uh, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, marries Janviga as a very old man. He has a couple of sons, uh, one of whom dies as King of Hungary, fighting the Turks at Varna in 1444. The other one reigns for a huge, long reign as, for most of the 15th century, marries into the Habsburgs. So we get certainly one of Europe's premier dynasties. But it's always a bit unstable regarding the succession. Are they going to be elected again in Poland, uh, to what, what's going to be the relation between the Polish throne and the Lithuanian throne, uh, or then, you know, this effort to acquire the thrones of Bohemia and Hungary, is it really worth it from the dynastic point of view? Um, uh, but ultimately, uh, they have a sort of through four generations uh, in Poland and Lithuania, we have the... Creation of a mature community that's brought Poland and Lithuania uh, together. And we have Renaissance culture, we have a prosperous economy. Uh, so although they've lost a bit of territory in the northeastern Muscovy and they're no longer kings of Bohemia and Hungary in the south, you know, the jagiellons are clearly one of Europe's great dynasties in the in the 16th century. And for that reason, their reigns are looked back as a kind of sort of golden age. But it was there was fragility to that uh, to that prosperity too
1: mm. and what, what would cause the fall of the commonwealth because as, as we know they would they were conquered and then there wouldn't be independence until after the great war and then they would be conquered again and not really be truly independent until after the second world war so what what caused the fall of the dynasty uh, not the dynasty but to to any oh, the politically right? the in the commonwealth
0: the commonwealth well it falls into this crisis from the middle of the 17th century and by the time we get to the reign of peter the great at the start of the 18th century during the great northern war uh, which led to russia becoming the premier power in the baltic and 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 the decline of sweden then we have uh, at that stage it's going to be very difficult to mount a recovery uh, the, Russia and other foreign powers are able to manipulate the Commonwealth's institutions, but nevertheless a recovery begins, an economic recovery, uh, a cultural flourishing in uh, ideas, and in Poniatovsky's reign uh, we get you know, this against-the-odds attempt to reform the Commonwealth despite everything that Russia can throw against it and also despite the suspicions of a large part of the nobility. Um, there's a crisis in the 1760s. We get the first part. That's a third of the country got with a third of its population. Another period of sort of quiet reform. And then after this sort of you know, of, of what happens at, uh, on the Dnieper in 1787, we get the impatient nobility taking over at a time when the Russians are fighting the Turks again in 1788. Uh, and this is the so-called four years parliament or or great same. Uh, and this leads to the thorough reform of the Commonwealth's institutions. The king sort of you know, gradually gets himself back at the helm of things. We get the, the passing of this, the, the Constitution of the 3rd of May 1791. And a great future is in store for the Commonwealth. The prospects for the 19th century are excellent. And this is precisely what Catherine II cannot tolerate, just as Putin cannot tolerate the possibility that Ukraine's going to be a success, that it's going to be prosperous, it's going to be free, and it's going to be an attraction for his own people. So the II could not tolerate the possibility of a successful, free, attractive Commonwealth, which would attract peasants and burghers from, uh, from the, the Russian Empire there, one that could block her expansion and projection of power westward uh, into Europe. So the Commonwealth as a success was intolerant it had to be crushed. She found herself a very small number of magnates uh, who of course,
1: were... of course it was a different time back then in this in the seventeenth century and, and that than today when Putin tried to invade mm. Ukraine.
0: Yes, there were some big differences. Uh, the Ukraine is now being supported by uh, the uh, by, by NATO, uh, by American intelligence and weapons. Uh, uh, instead of having sort of Prussia uh, uh, and Austria uh, on the other side, it's sort of got Poland, Lithuania, uh, Romania. Uh, this makes uh, this makes a huge uh, this makes a huge difference. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Russia is, in relative terms, no longer the great power uh, that it was at the time of Catherine the Great, even if it now has nuclear weapons, which again is another factor in the equation. Anyway, to return to the late 18th century, the, uh, she, Catherine finds a small number of magnates. but I bet con-
1: Catherine would like to have nuclear weapons.:
0: uh, well i'm sure uh they would have transformed uh, uh, her power should they have been available um the um she finds a small number of people willing to do her will, but they're incapable of doing things properly. And then there's the opportunity to distract the Austrians by fight, who are fighting a war with revolutionary France. The Prussians have their price in the West, and Catherine can take an absolutely huge slice of strategically vital territory in what is now West Central uh, Ukraine. Uh, and so we get the second partition, 1793. This provokes an insurrection among the Polish Army led by the great Kosciuszko, who had fought the British in America. Uh, And this has some successes. It shows, again, that there is great potential in Polish society for freedom, but it is crushed uh, in the end, and then it's a simple matter of dividing up the remainder uh, with Prussia and Austria. And so the Commonwealth is brought to an end in 1795, and two years later the three powers make an agreement to uh, never again to use any name which could recall the existence of Poland. Of course doesn't that, they
1: divide that. Poland and Lithuania in th- between themselves, the great powers? Sorry? Doesn't, doesn't they divide Poland and Lithuania between themselves in three yes, parts? Yes, they do.
0: These were the three partitions. Uh, the final one, 1795, saw uh, Russia end up with almost two-thirds of the of the overall ter- lands of the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Prussia and Austria getting the rest.
1: So how how does Polish people view the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth today in and as a under history are fascinated by it or is it kind of like just history buffs to really try to st- study the Commonwealth, or is it widely remembered? Uh, there
0: is fascination with the past. There's a lot of appetite for uh, for history in Poland, and a lot of arguments uh, about history in Poland. Uh, it's still often referred to as the first Polish Republic sometimes. It's taking time to appreciate that this was not simply a predecessor uh, of later Polish states of the 20th century, It was that, in a sense, uh, but it was also a Commonwealth that was formed out of voluntary unions with other nations and communities, hence the idea of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. That's not a... Name that was ever used in documents, uh, whereas we can actually find the Polish Commonwealth in some eighteenth-century documents. Uh, but the idea of the the Commonwealth as something, you know, a good deal larger, more diverse uh, than the Poland of the twentieth century—that's certainly sort of catching on. And of course, the Hussars have never ceased to sort of fire the uh, the imagination. When Poland and Lithuania were restored in nineteen eighteen, there was a very much a sense of restoration. This was putting something back that had been taken away. It was not something that had simply been invented by sort of nationalist activists in the 19th century.
1: Did they consider having royalty again when they restored Poland or was that kind of a republic now?
0: Oh, well, it was uh, precisely because uh, there was no ruling dynasty. There were some who wanted to go back to the Saxons uh, in uh, at the start of the uh, uh, during the First World War uh, had the German had the Germans won the war and created a puppet Poland then they would have found some German royal one of the Catholic branch of the Hohenzollerns mm. who would have made a uh, a, a suitable uh, puppet king uh, but I think it was pretty obvious in 1918 that neither Poland nor, uh, the, or, nor Lithuania was left to its own choices uh, was going to uh, be anything other been a republic in the modern sense. In the case of Lithuania, we have another German prince who was going to become Mindargus II, uh, but you know, they couldn't reach agreement there. He would obviously have been a German puppet in the end. It was clear there was going to be a, a republic there uh, as well. Uh, just occasionally, the, you know, the, the Kents uh, get mentioned as possible uh, kings of Poland by the small group of Polish royalists, but I don't think that's ever going to happen.
1: I was asking because in Norway, when we became independent, there was a referendum if we if we wanted royalty or not, and we chose to have royalty for some reason. And I beneath me, mean, I don't see. i honestly. I don't see royal monarchy being a thing in the modern world, but. It shows the regardless to have monarchy and which brought the Crown Prince, I believe, of Denmark to come. Well,
0: Norway got its monarchy before the First World War. Mm. Uh, and there was also a, a very close uh, British connection there among the, uh, the the Scandinavian royal families. So uh, a little bit of a, a different situation.
1: Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. Before you go, do you have any questions? Play where people can buy your books if they're interested in learning more about the Commonwealths.
0: Um, yes. Well, thank you for the invitation to to talk. If people would like to read more, then my book, The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, 1733 to 1795, Light and Flame, uh, is published by Yale University Press, and it can be bought at, uh, uh, at the Yale University Press website, the UK website for deliveries in Europe, uh, the American website uh, elsewhere.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk with you. We are about that age as well. We are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. And if you do have the time, please consider leaving us a little review and write a little review. It will help us tremendously. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next week. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve
0: nice things.